Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you're here uh, to uh, join us for worship uh, actually in person. And those of you that are at home, we also welcome you. And I hope that uh, many of you uh, can uh, start making your way back to church. I know it's convenient to stay in your pajamas at home, but uh, we actually are all in our pajamas too. So we want you to come and join the pajama party. Uh, but thanks, uh, thanks for jumping in online. Share and like and do all those things uh, to help us get the word out. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to Esther chapter 5, or chapter 6, I'm sorry. We're going to read this chapter, and then I'll, I'll very quickly uh, give you a little bit of background. We'll jump into the lesson. So Esther chapter 6, and I hope you've had time to read the whole book. It just takes about 15, 20 minutes. And I urge you to do that. Uh, Sit down and read it through one time or two times. Uh, But now hear God's word. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hung on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the, king's, then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing that you have said, leave nothing out that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zerah said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely 
fall before him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, very quickly, the book of Esther has no mention of God, no mention of prayer, no mention of anything supernatural, and it's, the, the text is actually kind of stark. It doesn't tell you what the people are feeling, except for occasionally, you know, they were filled with wrath or anger or whatever. But it's a very masterful piece of literature because by its very... Uh, absence, the absence of any mention of God or miracles or prayer or supernatural, it, it is inviting you to, to see the presence of God and the invisible hand of providence. Now, um, to prepare for this, some of you asked me, how, how do we prepare sermons? Well, we go online and we find people that have preached it and then we just copy everything that they say. Never mind. No, we don't. We use commentaries and books and things like this. And I picked up, uh, I have a bunch. There's a room full in there and some in the other room. But uh, One of the texts I use, The Invisible Hand. That's what we, we actually titled the sermon series after R.C. Sproul's book, The Invisible Hand, which is on uh, the doctrine of providence. Uh, I was in Dr. Sproul's last class on providence that he taught at RTS uh, before he moved to Knox Seminary around this very book. Uh, also use this, Ian Duguid's uh, Scottish Presbyterian, Joyce Baldwin, female theologian, top drawer, Brian Gregory, really good, Karen Jobes, this is the one that uh, you've heard me mention many, many times. And finally, this book by Paul Helm, uh, I recommend it, but only to those of you that have an IQ of about 190. Uh, it's tough to read. So I, under, I understood every few, every few pages. I would catch a word I understood, like when he said, whatever the details, I got that. But the rest was a wonderful book. So these are the books that I used, and, and, uh, and they're very helpful. What's been going on in this book is that a series of coincidences, in fact, there are so many, the preponderance of coincidence, can't, you can't escape it. But the, 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 after a while, you start saying, wow, what is going on here? And there are one after another reversals. In fact, the very nature of the book of Esther are reversals of fortune. And so you have in the beginning King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, married to this beautiful queen, Queen Vashti. And he calls her to come and parade in her crown in front of all his military men and his political men at a banquet where they were all drunk to come in and kind of sashay and show herself off because she was extraordinarily beautiful. She refuses. There's a lot of humor there because he's the king of the world. He's the monarch of one of the greatest empires that ever existed. And his wife says, no, I'm not coming. And it threw the kingdom into all kinds of... of uh, uh, ca uh, ca into a state of just catastrophe. We've got to bring our women under control. And so there's a little bit of humor uh, there. Then in the third chapter, we're introduced to this terrible uh, character, Haman, who is an enemy of the Jews. He's an Agagite and actually an Amalekite who were the historic enemy of the Jews from the very beginning of Moses coming out of Egypt. And, and uh, hopefully you, you were here for some of that. 
And then uh, there's, there's reversals there because Mordecai finds out that there's a, a plot to assassinate Ahasuerus. According to the Greek uh, historian Herodotus, there were about four or five attempts on Xerxes' life while he was uh, uh, in his uh, royal position. And it was because he was a philander. He loved, and he didn't just go out and fight. He had, not only did he have a harem, he had a beautiful wife, but then he started having affairs with all his nobles' wives. You know, it was like, okay, I'll, I'll make people hate me and want to kill me. And that's what he did. So there was a lot of intrigue in the Persian court during the reign of Ahasuerus. Mordecai finds out he's going to get assassinated. He tells Esther. She tells the king. And the king is rescued. And they recorded in the chronicles of the kingdom in their memorable deeds. And then when you just expect Mordecai to be raised up into some kind of high position, the very next thing is the enemy of the Jews, Haman, is elevated. Mordecai won't bow down to Haman because he's an Agagite and Amalekite, one of the enemies. And so he says, I'm not showing this guy any respect. He's an enemy of the Jews. And Haman can't stand it. It infuriates him. So he plots to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. In a year, one year, they're going to send out letters to everybody, and there's going to be a genocide, a holocaust of every Jew in the empire. Mordecai pleads with Esther to reverse the king's order, and so she takes her life into her hands. She goes and appears before the king, and he, he doesn't know anything. And all she asks, and she doesn't ask him to spare her people. She says, let me have uh, the privilege, the opportunity to honor you and to pay you respect with a feast, a banquet in your honor, and we'll bring Haman because he's the most prestigious, he's the prime minister of the country. So that's where it is set. But as Haman came out of the first banquet, Mordecai is there and he refuses to bow and it just enrages him. So he goes home and he talks to his advisors and they say, set up a gallows. Now, it's not a gallows with a rope where he's going to be hung. It was a killing stake. And I can't really go into the details of how they would, they, they would impale the person on the killing stake and then raise it. This one was 75 feet high. I don't know how high this, how high is this roof? Or cell? Cell? He knows. Rick, do you know how? What? 34, twice as high. And maybe it's just hyperbole, we don't know. But whatever it is, I mean, he wanted to show everybody this is what happens to you when you're an enemy. Then we come to chapter 6, which we just read. And in the book of Esther, the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible and many ancient documents are very carefully designed with, with these things. One of, the, one of the ways they designed the text was called a chiasm. So that when they opened the scroll, the actual, the way the, the text was set out, you could see a pattern. And they would have the, the lines or the emphases that they wanted in certain places that you couldn't mistake. In the book of Esther, get this, ten chapters... And the very central, pivotal point in the entire book, the center of the chiastic structure that the rabbis 
invested or the scribes, whoever put this thing together, are these words. That night, the king could not sleep. That's what the book of Esther is about. Insomnia. (laughs) He could not sleep. Karen Jobes said in her commentary, arguably, this is the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. Haman plots Mordecai's outrageous death. The king plans to honor Mordecai's faithful service. Unsuspecting Haman. Both of them can't sleep that night. Haman is preparing the gallows and the king can't sleep. He's reading the records from their, their, their chronicles. Unsuspecting Haman enters the king's court early the next morning before anybody's there because he's going to ask, please let me impale Mordecai on this killing stake. And he magnificently trips over his own pride. Who is there that the king would rather honor, listen, than me? This is what he says to himself. Who would, who would the king rather honor than me? Ah, you know, there's not anybody out there that he would honor. If ever there was a picture of pride going before the fall, Haman is it. And so let's look at three things real quickly just to keep, keep things in order. First of all, the invisible hand. That is what this book is about. When you go through your life and my life, you know, it's not all bells and whistles and stars and miracles every minute and all of this stuff. You're just living your life. And God wants you to just live your life, to be consciously aware of His presence in your life Every single minute, whether you pray or you don't pray, whether your life's going good or not going good, whether you're in the middle of some grievous sin where you're shaking your fist at God, He is still there and He won't ever leave. Nothing can drive Him away. Imagine the confidence that this should engender in the people of God. That He is always at work. We are not puppets We're working as He works, but He is at work. He is involved in the things of this world to the smallest detail. That night, the king could not sleep. It's the center of this book. It is the theme of the invisible hand. You could go back, and I I, I tried to do this, but we don't have enough time. I wish I could have, but... You can go back and insert the words, it just so happened a hundred times. It's never done. The author never says it just so happened because he wants you to say, wow, it just so happened that there's this loud racket out there in the city building this gallows 75 feet tall, and it just so happened the king couldn't sleep that night. Maybe the gallows building was keeping him up. I don't know. But he couldn't sleep. It just so happened that he chooses to have read to him, not sonnets from Shakespeare, you know, something like that, but this boring, maybe that was the point, this boring chronicle of, you know, events of the kingdom. It just so happens that they open this massive, I mean, these chronicles went back to the early kings of the the, the Persian Empire and and the... uh, Probably even beyond that to the, uh, the, the Babylonian Empire. They kept these things. 
volumes and volumes. Just so happened they open it to this story of Mordecai saving the king five years before. Five years. Hadn't gotten any credit for it. Well, in the ancient Near East, that was, a, that was shameful. You mean this man showed, uh, 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 he saved my life and we didn't reward him? How You know, we can't let the word get out that I'm not a generous king and appreciate loyalty. So he immediately wants to honor Mordecai. The realization of the oversight just scandalizes him. Well, you can go through the entire book of Esther and you can, say, you, you can go along and say, just so happens Vashti decides she doesn't want it. Just so happens all the generals and military leaders are there. Just so happens that the king decides to depose her. Just so happens that Esther, this Jewish woman, gets hauled in with all the other virgins. It just so happens she wins the king heart. Just so happens. You could go through all of those and you see when you put them all together, you see God's invisible hand. You see His hand. It's so obvious because it's not obvious. <laughs> it's amazing. The, the, the genius behind it just stuns me. The individual circumstances, each one is reasonable. Okay, so he can't sleep, no big deal. Maybe he had too many uh, tacos al pastor. Who knows what he did? But he couldn't sleep. But you string that together with any number of other things, I mean, uh, like I just did, and wow, that's not a coincidence. Charles Spurgeon, the, uh, the great Presbyterian preacher, I can't get a laugh out of you. He was a Baptist. All right. Anyway, Charles Spurgeon said this, we always want to see through providence. We always want to peek behind the curtain. We want to see what God's secret will is. And we want to get back there and ignore what's going out on here. As if you could peek behind the curtain and understand anything that you would see. If God pulled back the curtain on His eternal decrees and let you see, you wouldn't understand what you're looking at. He could explain it to you and you wouldn't understand what you're looking at. So he says, listen to, listen to Spurgeon, we always want to see through providence, but we never will. Instead, honor God by trusting Him. Now, when I read that, I felt great because if Charles Spurgeon finished all his sermons with, will you trust him, then he must have known about me because that's what I do every week. I just say, will you trust him? You know, you're not going to figure out all this stuff out there. You're just not going to know. It's mysterious. And if you did know, you would botch it up. So... He just asks us to trust Him. Not to become fatalistic, inshallah, whatever happens, God's will. No, no. Active trust where you're laying hold of God's promises and acting accordingly. And not being paralyzed because you don't see miracles and fireworks going off all the time, something supernatural. Nothing wrong with that. But I don't know, it's, maybe that's your life. Maybe you wake up in the morning and there are you know, fireworks going off in your bedroom. The Holy Spirit's just there entertaining you. Maybe that's why He's not at my house. Too busy with you. 
But if you're like me and like most people, come on, let's be honest, you're just living your life. And God wants you to live that life. Make your choices. Do the things that are before you. Not to stress over every tiny little thing, knowing that nothing will fall through His providential hand. The other is to try and interpret providence. In other words, you've heard it. It's been used ad nauseum by Christians. Well, look for open doors. Look for open windows. You see, we see all these circumstances and we think the circumstances must be God's will. So we begin the process of what Dr. Walke calls Christian divination. Oh, I need to know what God wants me to do with my life. I'll turn it over here. Let's see what is he wants to do. The Shunammite, Elisha, what is all of that? Never, I better find another place. You see, we, we, we're nutty. We, are Christ, we use Christian witchcraft to try to discern God's providential will instead of reading our Bibles, which will give us wisdom, and then we make our choices. And if you have five different choices... Choose one of them. And if you choose it in faith and you trust the Lord, you can never miss His will. It's impossible. Sin notwithstanding. Get it? You just can't miss sin notwithstanding. That's another whole thing. Q&A. Alright, so quickly... Don't get into Christian divination. Live your life. Trust Him. You know, come to the elders. Let us pray with you and God will order your steps. And otherwise, you're going to get paralyzed or you're going to try to read into providence and you're going to make a mistake. So, that's the invisible hand. Let's look at this character. And I want to do this quickly because, but it's, it's so important. What is the character of self orientation. See, Haman is not only just a bad guy, he is also exemplary of human beings of every kind. He is self-oriented, completely self-oriented. You know, I'm self-oriented, but not completely. Every once in a while, I will share a bite of ice cream with my wife. I'm not completely self-oriented, this man is completely self-oriented. He is the, the, I mean, he's toxically self-oriented. So what is the character? He says in his mind, in verse 4, he says, what, you know, the king asks him, what should be done for the, for the man the king delights to honor? He really wants Haman's advice. What should we do to honor this person? And Haman can't think past himself. Well, who else? Who else would the king honor but me well how about the other 250 million people in Persia any one of them maybe no he can't think of anybody but himself so self-orientation let me give it to you very quickly self-orientation creates a kind of blindness to where we can't see outside ourselves. this is what happened in the Garden of Eden chapter 3 serpent tells Eve, wouldn't you like to have some of this fruit? It will make you like 
God. It will, you know, you'll be able to know things. You'll have secret knowledge that only God has. Do you see the pattern that is set for us in Scripture? And it is pervasive. In fact, that is the meta-narrative, the grand and glorious big narrative of Scripture is God creates a good world. Man wants to be like God and brings chaos to the world. And so God goes about recreating the world. Genesis, Revelation 21 is parallel, 21 and 22, parallel to Genesis 1 through 3. There the book ends. And in the middle is the pale Galilean. Amazing. Okay. Blindness. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? The Bible always stresses the priority of what we call the inner life. We teach a course here called Spiritual Dynamics. It's been a few years. But in Spiritual Dynamics, one of the things that we try to press into the students, press into the people in the class is that God is looking, He has a priority, and the priority is the inner life, not your giftedness or your skills. In a lot of churches, uh, uh, evaluations are made, tests are given to see what are your gifts. How can we use you in the church? And I understand, I understand the need for those types of things, but I don't like them. I don't want to be used. Do you want to be used? Nobody wants to be used. But start living your Christian life in a group of nutty people like us, people that are all messed up. Start, start living a life of others. Instead of being blind and just thinking about yourself, think of others and pour your life out and that will be the demonstration. Who you are, your character, will determine what you do instead of the other way around, which is not Christianity. Christianity is not do these things and then everybody will know you're a Christian. Be this way and then, you know, you'll, or, or act this way and you'll be a Christian. No, it's be a Christian and because you're a Christian, you act this way. One is Christianity, the other is not. It's, it's religion. So there's a priority to the inner life. Character matters more than gifts. You can have somebody that has lots of gifts, but they could be a monster. Our thoughts, our motive, our desire. If, if all you're thinking of is self, what self-affirms? What self-promotes? What, how do I self-protect so that nobody can hurt me? Well, you're going to be a miserable person. Or do you know God's heart? Is your heart beating in rhythm with His heart so that you are somebody who doesn't need the constant approval of everybody else like your pastor? The only reason that we go into ministry, ask Dawson, he'll tell you. The only reason we go into ministry is because we are people pleasers. And we need, your, we need your approval. We need you to laugh at our jokes. Right? Which you haven't been doing a good job. <laughs> we love approval. And so do you. We all do. But when it becomes the thing that controls you, 
you're in trouble. And we all know that. And you can't just suppress yourself and drive yourself down and I'm such a dog, I'm such a dirty, rotten worm, I'm no good for nothing. That's just pride. It's just pride with some makeup on. It is not true humility. So there's a blindness that comes with self-orientation. There's an overindulgence. Secondly, overindulgence. Look at verses 7 through 9. His idea is this. Here's what you do to the man that you want to honor. Clothe him with your royal robes. Let him ride your horse, the horse that they, they would take the mane and they would weave it into a top knot on the horse's head. That was the king's horse. And they have sculptures, reliefs in Iran and Persia today of those very things. The king's horse had this big top knot. It was his mane. It was pretty cool. And, and that was the king's royal horse. And, and there was magic. It was magic to have the king's robe. You took on his strength, his position, his his identity, and you rode his horse so you had his power, his war, warring power. You had his ninja skills, you know, so that you could beat, you know, leap tall buildings in a single bound and shoot spider webs out of your hand and swing and whatever they do. Put the royal room. For Haman, listen to this. This is just remarkable. For Haman, no other honor was left. You see, he had been elevated to be prime minister. He was top guy in the kingdom. No other honor was left to him but to partake of the king's own power, prestige, and stature. It's the closest, listen carefully, because this should just send you into all kinds. If you're a student of your Bible, your mind is going to go zoom right now. Not the kind of zoom we're all, no. It's going to go zoom like turbo zoom. Listen. Clothing yourself with the king's guard, riding his horse and all that was the closest a person could identify with the other Be unified with the other without actually being them. Do you get it? Without actually being them, this is as close as you got. This was an exact representation of the other reflected in you because you had their clothes, you have their horse, you are riding through the city and you get their glory and their majesty. The Westminster Confession talks about that, never mind. It's amazing what is being said in this book that doesn't even mention God. Love it. Your personhood is, while it's distinct from the king, but your substance is equal. Your personhood is different, but your substance is equal. He's king. You're as much king as he is because you're on his horse wearing his clothes. It is absolutely one of the deepest theological statements in your Bible, and it doesn't even mention God. Incredible. But... That overindulgence will lead to the third thing, betrayal. Look what happens in verses 10 and 11. The king loves what he said. This is, of course, this is what I would do. If I want somebody to honor, 
I'll give them my clothes because I'm such a hot deal. I'm so great. I'm the greatest person in the world. You see the pride of King Ahasuerus? Same thing. I'll give him my clothes. That's great. That's the way I really honor the man I want to delight in. But it betrays you. This kind of self-orientation will and does betray. We've all experienced it. It comes back to bite us. Hurry, take the robes and go give it to Mordecai. You dress Mordecai. You lead Mordecai on the horse. You proclaim in the city square of Susa, Mordecai is the great, this is the king, this is the one the king wants to, to honor. A complete, he must have been, I bet his jaw hit the ground. Lots of satire and lots of humor. And the Bible is replete with this. Don't demand an audience with the king, Proverbs. Don't demand an audience with the king or push for a place among the great. It's better to wait and be invited to the head of the table than to be sent away in public disgrace. Jesus took this passage, by the way, and he used it in a very famous parable about a wedding feast and to try to tell the Pharisees, you know what, you're jockeying for power that is fleeting and momentary. Go to the back of the line and let the king invite you up. That's honor. But don't be at the front of the line and the king come and say, "Ah, not you, I like him better, and move you to the back. Disgraceful. Pride ends in humiliation. This is Proverbs again. The godly are rescued from trouble. And it falls on the wicked instead. Okay. It will betray you. But you know, self-indulgence, this... uh, self-orientation will also, it will reward you. There's, a, there's an a, amazing reward that goes with it. Look at 12 and 13. Mordecai returns to the gate, and this is sublime, folks. This is amazingly sublime. After this honor that is paid to him, the, the text intentionally says he goes back to the gate, which is the, the, uh, uh, the, the business administration building where he worked. He goes back to his job at the king's gate. That's all it says. He doesn't go throw a party. He doesn't you know, go and show off. He doesn't talk about how much honor he got. He does nothing. He goes back to work. Like, you know what happens when you win the, uh, the lottery do you know the life expectancy of people who win the lottery? Does anybody know? What is it? Good. Say, anybody know? Seven years, if you win the lottery, you will only live seven years, maybe less. Because your life ends the day you win the lottery. Every, every motivation of a human being just goes away. And you start doing crazy things and it ends up killing you. It's the truth. He returns to the king, doesn't he? He won the lottery, for goodness sakes, and he goes back to work. No problem. But look what happened. The reward that Mordecai got was vindication. The reward that Haman got was disgrace. And so we see finally this reversal. You see the invisible hand. You see God Uh, this self-orientation and how horrible it creates blindness, it betrays you, it does all these things, causes you to lose sight of reality so that you overindulge yourself. And then comes the reversal. And from this point forward, the rest of the book is one massive 
reversal of fortune after another. It, it's sad, but it's also a little bit comical. Look at verse 13. He goes back, Haman, he's destroyed, he's distraught. He tells his wife and his wise men, look what's happened. And his wife says, you know, if he's Jewish, you're not going to win. You're going to lose. How many of us, think about this, how many of us think because we're Christians, we will be victorious? That every single desire of your heart that is godly and good will be met. Every disease that we have will be healed. Every heartache that you've suffered will be healed. Every person you've loved and lost will be restored to you. Every redwood tree that's been cut down, every whale that's been killed, every filthy garbage dump will be cleaned up. You see, there's going to be a grand reversal. And the sin which so easily besets us is going to be torn from us, ripped away from us, but in a way that we never forget of who we were and how it happened. And so from that day forward, we are forever praising our God. You can't lose. If you die, you win. If you don't get healed now, you're going to get healed later. If you don't don't have it now, you look with eyes of faith to the future and you will have it. Unless there's no resurrection, then all you get is dirt and a grave. And Apostle Paul said we are most miserable if that's the case. But in two weeks we celebrate the resurrection which was the great grand reversal. Of all, of all history. So in verse 13, he's saying to us, there is an inviolability to God's people. That's a fancy word. I, I, it just means that they cannot be destroyed. You know, we wring our hands and we think, oh my gosh, what's happening to our world? What's happening to our country? We're going to lose our rights, our Christian rights. There's going to be trouble in this country. Yeah, but, but folks, really... Name one Christian right that an American has lost. Ever. Just name one. You can't. In fact, we have so many that we're drowning in them. We're drowning in privilege. And all you have to do is get on. You know, you don't even have to get on an airplane. Get in your car. In fact, in El Paso, you can walk. Walk across the bridge. To what is. And see what a change there is. Or go further. Go down to Venezuela. Or go further than that. Go to Syria. Or Lebanon. Go, go anywhere. And you'll find out what it is to be a Christian. We're drowning in privilege in our country, folks. And yet we don't see it. God has promised you and me. Listen to what Ian Dugan, let me close with this. Listen carefully. God's work of providence is so clear 
that even the pagans cannot miss the significance. Even Haman's friends are not so dense as to write off this day's events as mere coincidence. No, if he's Jewish, there's an an invisible hand working. If he's Jewish, we've heard the stories, you know, Red Sea and all that stuff, Egypt. and That was part of their world, you know, their world history. Even Haman's friends were not so dense. They know that this must be attributed to the intervention of Israel's God. And that once, listen to what Duguid says, once he becomes involved in the world, God, the final outcome is never in doubt. That is the theme of the book of Revelation, by the way. The big theme of Revelation is victory for King Jesus. Victory for King Jesus. Throughout the ages, not the 21st century, has nothing to do with the 21st century. It's victory for Jesus throughout the ages forever to comfort people who really were being persecuted. And somebody somewhere on this earth has always been persecuted for being a Christian. Not here in the United States, but other places. The intervention of God, Israel's God, and that once he becomes involved, the final outcome is never in doubt. Haman will be destroyed. So, the reversals in this book simply are there to point out the great reversals of Scripture. So how, you know, I hope, and I I really pray, folks, that as I was talking about the garments and the horse and some of that, that some some of your mind, your thinking, start running down these tracks. And I hope that your mind starts thinking, you know, this is great. I know I'm going to win. How do I win? How do I experience? How do I live knowing that every step, every decision, every part of my life is in God's hands and I don't have to be afraid? How can I know that? And I read you a story here about the exchange of clothes. and How do I know that? How does that apply? Listen, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it to you. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters and they stripped him naked. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove branches of thorns and crushed it onto his head and made a, made a crown. And they saluted him and they taunted him and they took a reed and they beat him over the head with the reed. And they knelt down and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. They spit. They mocked. Then they took off his purple and they put back his clothes, led him away to the cross, and there they crucified him. And the soldiers took his clothes and threw dice. What does it mean? For you and I. What, what does Esther mean for you and I? The exchange of clothes, the exchange of power, the exchange of identity, the exchange of person. The ability for a king to invest 
in another person, His glory, His, His majesty, His honor, His beauty, His identity, and not be that person, but be the exact representation of that person, the very glory reflected in that person, that's His Son who deserved that clothing, who was the great King, who had it stripped from Him for one simple reason. One simple reason. So you could be clothed with robes of righteousness, let us be glad. This is revelation. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast, the banquet of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She's been given the finest, pure, white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said, write this down. So it can never be forgotten. In heaven, you and I will be clothed with robes of righteousness that are sparkling white. But there will be a person, a human being in heaven in the eternal kingdom whose robes will be splattered with blood. His own blood. And that's our Savior. We will be standing there with these beautiful clothing and we will be looking at those robes on Him. Him for us. I hope you'll trust Him. Let's pray. Father, Uh, Who would have thought that Esther of all books would have this, but it's there as clear as a bell. And so we thank you, we praise you, we give you glory and honor for clothing us with righteousness, that you who knew no sin was made to wear these robes of unrighteousness, that we might be clothed. And I pray that you would make this real to us, your people, help us, so that we can love you and serve you every day of our lives and not be afraid of the winds of change around us. There's nothing to fear. You are our bridegroom. And we love you. Amen.